0: Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, you want to turn with me to uh, week number 19 in the story. We're going to be looking in, if you got your Bibles, not the storybook, Ezra chapter 1. We're going to start at Ezra chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'm just going to pray and ask the Lord to help us as we dig into his, his word. So Lord, we thank you this morning that you've given us the opportunity to sing songs to you, to declare your praises, to um, lift our eyes to you. God, thank you that you help us, Lord. You give us grace that we can take our eyes off of our immediate situation and put them upon you, the eternal the glorious, the majestic, and Lord, now we pray as we dig into your word that you would open our eyes to behold the glory and the beauty written across every page of your scriptures. Lord, that you would bring direction to us, that you would um, help us, that you would speak to us, and Lord, you'd give us the grace to respond and enjoy and treasure, God, your word to us as your people. In your name we pray. Amen, amen. So we're we're going to start in, in chapter nineteen, which is page two sixty three uh, in the story uh, book or Ezra chapter one. I wanted to start by way of showing a picture of uh, a picture of my basement workout room, actually. And so, um, yeah, see, those are all those weights and stuff, like home gym kind of thing. Now you can see, I don't know if you can really tell, but there's like clothes kind of hanging up around there, right? That's not Corey's room, by the way. Okay, Cory doesn't. St- Corey's not staying there. But that home gym is really. How many of us have had the best intentions in the world, went and bought a treadmill or a home gym, only to have that turn into the most expensive clothes hanger you can possibly imagine? Right? Is that? Has anyone done that? All right. Am I the only one who's done that? <laughs> wow. I'm the only fool here. Okay. I'm the only one here. But so, so you kind of get this sense where, you know, you get all excited, you're going to start working out every day, I'm going to buy this home gym, I'm going to get tons of weights, I mean, I'm going to be ripped out in a month, and you end up looking like me after after a few months of not working out. So um, it just gets expensive. It gets ignored, it gets pushed back to the kind of recesses of our lives that we just ignore it, it gets covered with clothes. What we see this morning as we dig into the story book. is that the Israelites really, this describes the picture of the Israelites in their walk with the Lord in this chapter. Really, it's like that workout machine that we, we had the best intentions. We're going to start off really strong. We're going to follow the Lord. We're going to do everything He's told us to do, you know, and we're going to prioritize His ways. And then in the end, it just kind of falls apart, and we push the thing. It gets too hard to do. We don't like to work out that much, and it's too much energy, and I don't have time, and so everything gets shoved to the side and long forgotten about. Well, that's that describes Israel in this story. Now, if you remember, Judah was was sent away. The Southern Kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem was sent away into exile into Babylon in um, in in just the most horrific of ways. They were they were overrun. They were dis- the the city was destroyed. the The capital city completely burned to the ground, people losing their lives, their homes, their families, and they're sent away to Babylon in the exile for 70 years, okay? And so they're removed from their homes, their families, their culture, their religion, everything, their livelihood, everything is completely ripped away from the people of Judah, completely taken away from them. But something happens in 538 BC. Something happens that, that doesn't... Happened every single day. Cyrus, the king, King Cyrus, issues a decree that all the Jews living in exile could return home if they wanted to. He issues this decree. He says, look, if you want to go back, you can. No problem. You can head back. I don't know if we can show that map real quick. So the Jews are in exile in Babylon, and what they're going to do is they're going to travel, 50,000 of them are going to travel back to Jerusalem in 538 now, this is where we pick up the story in chapter 19, and two, page 263, or Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And this is what we read. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of, of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it into writing. So here we get what's happening. He makes a decree, but then we get the, the upper story as well. The upper story is God's perspective. This is what's happening in the perspective of heaven. right? So who moved on the heart of the king of Persia? The Lord did. The Lord in the upper stories is, is, is causing Cyrus's the work of the Lord. This is God's initiative. This is God's pursuit. God is, is allowing the Jews now to return back to their homeland. So this is the decree that King Cyrus makes. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. So he sends them with a mission. The people of Judah are going to go back to their home country on a mission from God, but also from King Cyrus, he says, "Look, here's what I want you to do when you go back. I want you to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so he makes his proclamation: "You can go back if you'd like. And not only are you going to go back, but we're also going to send you with all the necessary resources that it's going to take to rebuild the temple. So we want every, all of your neighbors, we want there to be a free will offering to the Lord. We want you to give gold and silver and clothes and whatever resources you have available for this purpose of rebuilding the temple. So the people now are collecting the goods and the 50,000 are going to make this huge journey back to Jerusalem. So they get back to Jerusalem. They make it back. This would have taken months to to embark on. This wasn't just some kind of jump on a flight and take a red eye into Jerusalem the next day. This would have been months and months of travel. Very expensive, very dangerous, but they make it back to Jerusalem. They've come back with a purpose. Now when they get back, you have to remember they get back to not just a place that's been kind of boarded up for a little bit. Now they get back and they have to open the shutters and kind of clean out the cobwebs. Jerusalem is destroyed. It's been completely burned to the ground. Every inch of this place is, been, is in rubble. It's, it is, there's nothing left. So they've got a little bit of work to do. The, this, the walls that surround Jerusalem that brought protection to them have been completely destroyed. The, the homes, the palaces, the, the magnificent buildings that were in the city are all destroyed as well. But most importantly, the temple. The temple is completely gone. There is nothing left. It is burned to the ground, completely destroyed, and they've got to go back and they've got to rebuild the temple. Now, before we get into reading anymore, I want us to just get a hold of why this the temple was so important for the Jewish people. right? The temple wasn't just like a church building that you had a few, you know, like, in Munster, there's a number of churches all throughout this area. There's pretty much churches on almost every street corner. There's churches all over the place. The temple wasn't like a church that, oh, the main temple is broken down, but we've got a whole bunch of other temples that we can go to to worship the Lord. This temple was significant. It was unique. It was peculiar. It was a place unlike any other place in the whole face of the earth. In this place, in this temple, God said, I will put my presence... And the temple was the place where true worship took place. There wasn't any other place prescribed by the Lord for true worship to take place, only at the temple. So you can see where they wouldn't have been able to just kind of leave Babylon and say, you know what, that Jerusalem place is way too far. Why don't we just build a temple over here? I mean, surely we can save ourselves the trip and the money and everything else. We'll just build build a temple here in Babylon. You can't do it that way. God was to be worshipped in the way in which he prescribed the worship to take place, and only in his prescribed way. See, that's what got the Jews in trouble in the first place, is that they wanted to worship all these other things and worship God in their own way, in the way that they thought best, in the easy way. We don't need to go down to Jerusalem. We'll just build a little altar on the hillside. And God said, that's not how I am to be worshipped. There's only one true place and one true way. I prescribe the place and I prescribe the way. That's not your decision to make. And so rebuilding the temple had massive implications for the people because this was the place where they would go to meet with God. And nowhere else in the world. This is where they would go to worship the Lord, to give sacrifices to God. This was the place in all the earth where God had promised to put his presence. Now, this is the place where true worship took place. And if we think about worship, and so often we can be limited in our understanding of worship. And I appreciate when Adam Kern comes up and, and wants to give instruction about worship, man, he's passionate. This is, what, this is some of the stuff that Adam has talked about in the past and some of the stuff that we've talked about. Worship is simply ascribing worth to something. It's, it's ascribing worth and value and weight, giving something weight. It's not just singing a song. Now, it is singing a song, but it's not limited to singing on a Sunday morning from 9.30 to 10 o'clock or however long it goes. That's not the essence of worship. That's not just the totality of our worship as believers. And the same thing with the people of God in this this chapter. Worship wasn't just limited to only singing of songs. It was a whole system of, of life that was lived before the Lord. It was worship is giving something of value, something priority, placing importance upon it. It's costly. It demands time and energy and money. It means it takes precedence over other things in our lives. So the things that we worship are the things that we give ourselves time and money and our energy to. Those are the things that we give. Those are the things that we worship. It takes precedence over everything. And so for Israel, at this moment, worship meant going to the temple on appointed holy days and festivals. It meant offering sacrifices for sin. It meant going and giving to the temple treasury. It meant orientating your life around temple life. We would orientate ourselves and our lives and our whole calendar around where true worship took place, and that was the temple. It was surrounding themselves with the purposes of God. Now, For us today, for us today, like I said earlier, worship means orientating ourselves and our lives around the purposes of the Lord. It's giving worth and value and priority to God. It is singing, but it's also submitting ourselves, like Corey Corey reminded us of, of Romans chapter 12. Offer yourselves, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, which is your spiritual act of worship. Right? There is a sense in which we live our lives before the Lord as we prioritize the things of the Lord, as we give ourselves to the things of God. It is an act of worship. It is a way in which we worship God, not just singing, although it includes singing. It's also the way in which we give and the way we serve and the way we prioritize the things of the Lord, the way we give preference to what God has to say over and above our own thinking. That's worship. And for some of us, it may mean a missions trip. It may mean hosting international students at our home. And so hopefully you're beginning to see how worship's much bigger for us today than just singing. It's much bigger. And for Israel, it meant for them that they needed to get on with rebuilding the temple. It was so important for them. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to turn over to Ezra chapter 4. We're going to read Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Or in the story, we're going to start reading page 256. No, I'm sorry. It's at 265. 265. So the people now, they get back to Jerusalem, and now they begin to rebuild the temple. They begin to get on with what they've been commissioned to do. Not only what King Cyrus has given them to do, but also what the Lord wants them to do. So they begin to rebuild the temple. Great. They lay the foundation. They, they build, rebuild the altar and the temple. Things are going well for the people. But they hit a snag. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esharad, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel Joshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel, those are the people who returned back from exile, answered the people who are trying to discourage them. They said, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the people around them, so the people who are outside of Jerusalem, the people who did not like the fact where the Jewish people were coming back to rebuild the temple... The peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed the officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they begin to frustrate and begin to offer bribes and begin to discourage the people from building. So what happens? Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia the temple construction comes to a complete halt it's a screeching stop they were building they were getting on with it man they had they had laid the foundation progress was being made and often people come in alongside them and begin to discourage them and the, the the construction comes to a complete stop now It didn't stop for a few weeks. It didn't stop for a few months. It didn't stop for a few years. And like my home gym, it became forgotten about. It was forgotten about. It was pushed off to the side. It became less and less of a priority. People just began to, I mean, it was there, but then this thing's never going to get finished. No one wants to work on it. Well, neither do we. And so it became forgotten about. See, this story that we're reading this morning is so much bigger than just a building. This is so much bigger than just, this is not just a structure. It's so much bigger than that. Think of it like this. Now, if the White House looked like this, so if you came into America and you went to visit the White House and it looked like that, right? Or maybe the next picture, if you went to visit the White House, you're coming in, and the White House looked like that, right? Fire explosions, actors walking around with fake guns and that kind of stuff. What would that have to, what would that say about our perspective and view on the presidency? right? If, if you go to visit the most the, the, the capital city and here is the most powerful man in the country, the person we've all elected, and, and we're going to go visit his house, and we're coming in and we're going to go to the, visit the presidency and the place is on fire, and there's stuff broken down, and, and nothing's, everything's in shambles, what would your perspective about America's view of the presidency be? you think, well, they don't care. Not only are they unable to build anything, but they could really care less. I mean, it's not that important to them. This is, this is something that kind of like, we show the rest of the world who we are through our leaders. And so if Barack Obama, instead of flying into India, this week on Air Force One, instead he flies down like a crop duster and kind of comes to a screeching stop on the runway and takes off his goggles and stuff. Like, that would say a whole lot about our perspective of the presidency and about what we thought about our country, wouldn't it? Now, thank goodness the White House looks more like this in this next picture. It's pristine, it's clean, it's nice, right? That says something completely different about what we think about our president, and what we think about our nation, doesn't it? If you went to visit that, you think, man, that's, these guys place a high priority on the leadership of the country, and they make, it, they make it important. So when the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God has promised to put his presence, is the place where the God that we proclaim is most important in our lives and the one that we worship exclusively the one that we follow with all of our lives, his temple, his place, his residency is broken down and completely destroyed and we go on year after year after year of not doing anything to it, what does that communicate to the rest of the world about the value of the Lord? Can you see that? It, it speaks volumes to our, what we think about God. He's not not worth very much. Man, we don't care if his his place is broken down. Man, it's not that big of a deal. We've got other more important things to get on with. We're too busy. And so the work in the temple, it stops, doesn't start up again for 19 years. So 19 years later, After this temple has been sitting in ruins, we read in Haggai, now turn over to Haggai, which is a minor prophet, towards the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Haggai, chapter 1, or in your storybook, this is page 266. This is what we read. The prophet Haggai is preaching in this context. The temple has been broken down for 19 years. The people have been back- From exile, they've neglected to take care of the very thing that not only Cyrus, but the Lord has commissioned them to do. It's been 19 long years of neglect and failure and forgetting. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. So God's word is now breaking into this context. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Man, there's a million reasons why this hasn't taken place. And everyone, everyone's looking at each other thinking, man, it's not time yet. Right? I mean, we're busy. So why, why is it not time to rebuild? Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? So what happened was, is the people got, they came back, began working on the temple and realized, look, my house is pretty beat up too. Look, man, the temple wasn't the only place that was destroyed. My, my home that I used to live in is now burned down too. And that needs to be repaired. I need a place to stay. So I'm going to go back to my house and I'm going to start a massive remodeling project. And my house, I need to get my house up to par. And so this paneling, it would have been like, it would have been luxury, right? You didn't need paneling. This was something that was very nice, something that's over the top, but made your house really sweet. So I said, look, you're too concerned about your own things than you are about what I have got going on. As a matter of fact, you didn't just kind of put up a home that you could dwell in and then get back to work. No, you went above and beyond and made sure that your house was absolutely amazing, that it looked pristine, that your house was in tip-top shape. Man, there was paneling all over the walls. Man, this is is a luxury. You guys are living living a high life right now. All the while, my house remains in ruin. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. So consider, give careful thought to what's going on, what you see happening around you. Take a look at my temple. Take a look at your home. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. He's saying, look, I want you to notice something. Right? You've planted tons, but you've only reaped a little. You've saved your money for yourselves, but when you when you've opened your wallet to get the money out, there hasn't been very much there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Again, consider your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expect much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, now we get the upper story, what you brought home, I blew away. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with your own house, therefore, because of you, the heavens had withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields, and the mountains, and on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So here it is. We get the upper story. The people have labored. Just, they've put tons and tons of hours and work and energy into building things for themselves, but it's just been an incremental change. They've, they've put away thousands, but when they've gone in there, there's only been 10 bucks left. They've planted a whole fields of crops. When they go to harvest, there's only a little section of it that's grown. Why is this? The Lord says, it's because, listen, it's because you have forsaken the very thing that I've called you to do. And instead, you've gone on with your lives. Where I should be the center of your life, I've now become that weight set that lives in your basement that's now covered with clothes and forgotten about. too busy, it's too expensive, it's too much work, no one else is doing it, no one else is helping. I mean, what's one person going to do? And what made exile so horrific, what made exile so horrific for the people of God was not that they were removed from the land, right? They could have just set up camp somewhere else, they could have put up houses. It wasn't, like, it wasn't just the fact that they were out of their home that they used to live in, It was the fact that they were away from God's presence. Exile was so horrific for God's people because that was the place where God said he's going to put his presence. And so exile meant being removed from the presence of God. Now here the people are, they're back in Jerusalem, back to the homeland, back to where God has put his presence, and the people are now living as if they are still in exile. They come back home to only live as if they were still living in exile. It made no difference. People have have new remodeled homes. They're getting on with life. They need to get on with their businesses and their farms. No one cares about this arrangement that God is homeless and they're doing fine except the Lord. Why is this? Well, God says, verses 4 and 9, people have been consumed with their own plans. They've got hobbies, they've got interests. They've got farms. They've got business. They've got homes to remodel. They've got kids to take care of. I mean, they've got all kinds of stuff going on. They, they're they're a busy. You've got to rebuild. I mean, they weren't doing bad things. Doing good things. Getting the business going back again. They getting the house kind of remodeled again. Those aren't bad things. But when God is calling them to a place of worship, and God's calling them to put him at the center of everything, And they do all these things in spite of that call. It's a rejection of the word of the Lord. It is a complete and absolute rejection of God's purposes for their lives. But there's work ahead. God says, go up in the mountains, climb the mountains, get timber down, rebuild the temple. This is hard work. There is sacrifice to be had. There will be a cost at serving the Lord. There's going to be a cost... They're not going to be able to work on their farm because God's calling them to go work on the temple. There's a sacrifice. He's calling them to use the resources that they have that were probably given to them by someone else at, from decree of the Lord to use for his temple. There's a cost involved. This wasn't something that was just free and easy. There was energy, there's time, there's commitment, there's priority. All these things were involved. See, for us today, it's not much different. God is calling us as his people to put him at a place of supremacy and priority in our lives. God is still calling a people today, a busy people. We are a busy people. I mean, we are so busy. I mean, we run from one thing to the next. We've got stuff going on, not bad stuff. Soccer practice. Home remodel projects. I mean, we've got all kinds of stuff going on, just like they did then, except the soccer part. The home remodel projects. And this is how God begins to get the attention of the Israelites there's drought, even their labor is in vain, crops have failed, there's not enough wine or oil or grain, everything's been frustrated. And now in this context of a people who are probably pretty weary, probably worn out, they've been working hard, harvesting little for 19 years, right? And in that context, the word of God speaks, and he says, come back to me. Return to me. Come back to me. You have forgotten me, but I have never forgotten you. You have you have you have squandered your time doing everything under the sun. But I have never forgotten you. I am pursuing you. I'm loving you. I'm speaking to you. I'm 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 making it a priority to 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 seek after those who are weak and broken down and have completely lost their way. I mean God was God was right in their midst. The temple was right there. They didn't have to travel thousands of miles to get there. It was right there. And they completely neglected it. But in that context, the word of God comes. It says, I've never forgotten you. So how do the people respond? How do the people respond? Let's look at 267 or Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua son of Jehoshadak the high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. This is unbelievable. I don't know if you've picked this up or not, but as we've read through this story, whenever there's a prophetic word, nobody listens. All right? This might be one of the one of the only might be one of the only instances in all the Old Testament, where a prophetic word comes and all the people respond to the word of the Lord. This is unbelievable. We haven't, had, we haven't seen this yet. The people actually hear the word of the Lord after they've completely forsaken the Lord for 19 long years, and the people now respond to the Lord. They obey the, the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. And this is what God says. I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Listen, this is what has happened. God not only only gives them the word to return to him, but then now he begins to stir their spirit up, He begins to give them the strength and the energy and the desire and the longing to complete the work that they had begun almost 20 years ago. And even though they had forgotten about the Lord, it's almost like they heard the word of the Lord and they just kind of like take one glance back at the Lord and the Lord says, man, I'm going to completely bless you beyond you can, what you can possibly imagine. Look, you take one glance at me, and the floodgates of heaven open up. You've completely forgotten about me. I've never forgotten about you. And when you take a glance at me, and you you hear the word of the Lord that I sent to you in the first place, and you take one glance back and say, okay, let's do this thing, man, the floodgates of heaven are opened. This is unbelievable. In the second year of King Darius, in the 21st day of the seventh month, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And so this is what he says, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, Who of you has left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work For I am with you, declares the Lord. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So what does the Lord do in this? What is, God's, what is God doing in this section of Scripture? He's sending His Word. He's stirring the people up to work. He's promising His presence during the labor. He will shake the nations and use the wealth of the nations to rebuild the temple, like he did in the Exodus. He will fill the temple with glory, and in that place, he is going to grant peace. And what did the people do? They just responded to his word. I mean, they weren't like on this massive rebuild. Like, oh God, I'm so glad you brought this word to us. We actually had a, we were just working on these blueprints, and we had all these laborers hired, and we we're just about to get the work started. God did this before anyone set out to work on the temple. I mean, this is an unbelievable promise of the Lord. You can see the grace and the mercy of God upon a people who are weak and weary. They're broken, they're tired. And what does God do? He says, I will bring peace. I will bring peace. You have not, you and the generations before you, you have not known peace, but I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to bring a peace that's so, so far beyond you, what you can possibly imagine. This promise of God is completely and absolutely disproportionate to anything that people had to bring to the table. This is a gracious and merciful God. God. He's giving the people an opportunity to respond to his his mercy and his grace. Look, this is how important this worship thing is. That I'm going to give you everything you need to respond. I mean, I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm going to make promises to you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to give you strength in the labor. I'm going to give you peace after the labor. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. This is what God is doing through and through and through. Man, these people had no idea the, the, the blessings of the Lord in all this. Can you see the value that God places on worship? Can you see the value of what God places on worship? This isn't a building. God wasn't just fixated about a building, right? God's not into, really into buildings and stuff. That's not his thing. What he's after is worship, true worship. And you can see after the promises, the, the unimaginable promises of God, the value that he places upon Worship. God gives an unbelievable blessing of grace in his people, called by his name to proclaim his majesty and his glory. And so God is in content as the creator of the universe, as the one who brought all things into existence. He's not content to be that workout machine sitting in your basement, forgotten about. God says, look, if this is who I am, if I am the creator, if I am God Almighty, if I am the one who's, who's spun the, the, the world and universes into existence, if I'm the one who knows your hearts and knows your lives and has given you life and purpose and meaning, I'm not content to sit in your basement covered with clothes and forgotten about because that's not what's best for you. This worship thing is, is what's best for us as God's people. This is what he's created us for. This is how we fulfill the very purposes of God for our lives. He knows what brings satisfaction and fulfillment for us is to worship him alone. And I wonder how often we fill our lives with hobbies, TV, so much more. So what does this practically look like? What does this worship for us practically look like today? It may mean for you this morning, not everybody, but it may mean for you making a priority out of just coming here on a Sunday morning and worshiping the Lord. Placing yourselves under God's word, singing his praises. It may mean giving ourselves in worship to community, to people. We'd open our lives up, we'd open our homes up to other people. Say, come be involved in my life. This is what's best for me, but I'm gonna sacrifice my own time and my own thing to be a part of, of other people's lives, to get involved with what, what God's doing in other people. It may mean giving time and giving a place and a priority to God's word. Not just a Sunday morning sermon, but on a regular basis, placing ourselves under the authority of God's word. That is worship. Worship didn't end when the songs quit being sung. As we are placing ourselves under the authority of God's word even now, it is an act of worship. We are prioritizing what God says over and above anything else we could be doing right now. It may mean opening our home to international students. Valuing the people who God values. Valuing the foreigner in our midst. Loving people. Opening our homes up to them. The very people whom God loves. It may mean Signing up for the fun fair at the school. Giving up our time for the sake of the purposes of the Lord. It may mean going on a missions trip. It may mean a commitment to sacrificially giving to the Lord. We're going to pass out the giving statements uh, either this week or next or something like that. We're, at the end of the year, um, the churches give giving statements out to people that they can submit for their taxes. And that's a great indication for us what did we prioritize financially last year? I mean, it's just a clear, this, is, this black and white, man, I either gave or I didn't. Did I prioritize the things of the Lord in this giving statement? This is giving worth and value to the Lord over and above my vacation time, my money, my energy. In the context of the people worshiping and prioritizing the Lord, God says this, I will give peace. I will give, I will grant peace. There was was an immediate fulfillment of this. God brought peace. But there's also a longer term fulfillment of this promise that we see that one day when the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ came. See, Jesus Christ didn't come to give temporary peace. See, the temple in AD 70, it was destroyed, completely wiped off the map. It's been destroyed since then. So this temple received a period of peace. There was, there was a few hundred years of peace, but it didn't last. And that's why Jesus Christ is the answer to the, the question of peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And I think as, we, as I pray, as I talk to people in this church and I see my own life, Oftentimes my home, my life, our homes, our lives, our marriages would not be described as peaceful. It may be anything but peace. There is struggle. There is disagreement. There is bitterness. There is unforgiveness. There is is hardship. And that is why we need the Prince of Peace. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to come in. See, peace, as, Jesus, as God is talking about, isn't just the absence of conflict. It's that knowing the Prince of Peace, knowing Jesus Christ who brings peace even in the midst of conflict. That's what Jesus Christ does. He offers lasting, true peace. And this peace is a blood-bought promise that God gives to his people. Colossians 1.20 20 says this, it is through him and through him to reconcile through Jesus Christ to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This peace was realized then, but it is fully realized in Jesus Christ through his work on the cross for his people. If we want to experience the peace that God offers It's not through neglecting the things of God and going our own way, doing the things that we want to do. It's about putting God's center in our lives. And the good news of the grace of God is that this was a people who didn't just get back to work and work wholeheartedly and for the rest of, they probably pull off the job, they probably jump back on the job. God's grace is available for us, even in our failures. Even as we don't follow and place God in the middle, God's grace is still available to us. As we close this morning, my desire for us as a church is that we would be a worshiping people. More so, Sunday mornings are great. We want that. We want to celebrate and rejoice in a Sunday morning. But that all of our lives would be a statement of the value and the worth of Almighty God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we we conclude here today, as we Prepare ourselves for communion. God, I ask that we would be a worshiping people. God, because that is who you've made us to be. Lord, I ask that we would place you front and center in our lives, God, that by your grace, Lord, we would be able to worship and love and call upon your name. Lord, that we would be able to rejoice and celebrate you. And Lord, I pray that you would stir that up in us. God, let us be a worshiping people because that is who you've made us to be. And God, now I ask that you would help us, Lord, to receive this communion in faith. God, knowing that you continue to invite us back to the table again. And Lord, thank you, God, for the peace that you offer to us through your spirit, through yourself. In your name we pray, amen.